In the last hours prior to nuclear war, the BBC would cease to exist. It would vanish, taking all the other channels with it, to be replaced with something very austere and forbidding called the Wartime Broadcasting Service. So it'd be goodbye to EastEnders and Play School and the Beech Grove Garden, goodbye to all TV, and hello to curt hourly announcements on the radio giving advice and instructions. This episode will ask what the Wartime Broadcasting Service was and how it would have worked. This is the Atomic Hobo and I'm Julie McDowell. This is the British Broadcasting Corporation. There was a red telephone sitting on the desk of the BBC's technical operations manager, T.O.M., let's call him Tom. Tom would work at his desk, busy, 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 probably not even paying attention to this silent red phone which is always there, but never does anything. Unlike all the beeping, flashing machines, buttons and screens in his office, this clunky red phone had only one purpose. If it ever rang, Tom's heart would probably freeze in his chest, because he'd know the red phone was ringing to deliver the four-minute warning. It would then be Tom's duty to, very quickly, grab a special cassette marked with a red dot load the tape and broadcast its contents to the nation. That was one of the BBC's roles in wartime, maybe its most important role, to warn the population of an incoming nuclear attack, to tell them all that they had just four minutes left. As you'll know from my previous podcasts, particularly the episode called Attack Warning Red, there was a network of sirens across the country, thousands of them, Some were set to automatically start at the flick of a switch, and others had to be manually wound up. But supplementing these sirens was the BBC, and they were authorised to cut into every radio and TV broadcast, even those on channels 3 and 4, to deliver the air attack warning. Now the scripts which delivered the warning changed through the Cold War. That from 1991, at the very end of the Cold War, said... Here is an emergency announcement. An air attack is approaching this country. Go to shelter or take cover immediately. That would be repeated 12 times on the tape, accompanied by a siren, and the whole sequence lasted for two and a half minutes. So, half of your four-minute warning would be accompanied by the soothing voice of a BBC announcer, but the last half of your four-minute warning would be silent, apart from any cries and sobs from your neighbours. But the comfort of the BBC would be withdrawn. For the last two minutes, you're on your own. Now, hopefully poor Tom and his red telephone wouldn't be caught completely unawares. All the planning for the BBC and nuclear war assumes there would be weeks, maybe even months of notice... Plenty of time then in which to manage the BBC's transformation from 
good old auntie to the wartime broadcasting service. If nuclear war threatened, the BBC would initially carry on as normal. There'd be no point in damaging morale by offering saturation coverage of the gloomy international situation when there was still a possibility of avoiding war. Plus, if the BBC went all out and crying war, it might send a worrying or at least ambiguous signal to the enemy. So the idea was, to borrow a phrase, keep calm and carry on. But if things continued to deteriorate and nuclear war seemed unavoidable, the BBC would start to, amongst other things, broadcast public information films offering the population advice on how to survive nuclear war. In the 80s onwards, this would have been the infamous Protect and Survive series of films. Prior to that, it would have been the old black and white films called Advising the Householder on Protection Against Nuclear Attack. The relevant films would have played on TV and radio, interspersed with some normal programming to try and keep up morale, although the very fact that they were playing these films would surely cut any morale dead. Here's a little snippet of the, what I think are terrifying, Protect and Survive films. You are better off in your own home. Stay there. And so, by this stage, the BBC would be getting ready to transform into the wartime broadcasting service. And that would mean, amongst other things, no more telly. TV would not operate after nuclear war, apart from the obvious reasons that most of the staff will have been sent home, uh, studios perhaps destroyed and any remaining resources diverted elsewhere, there will probably be no mains electricity to British households. And for those houses who are intact and who, miraculously, might still have power, are they going to be in any mood for snuggling down on the sofa for the generation game? No. The wartime broadcasting service would have no TV element. It would be radio only. So, the BBC would be preparing to shut TV down and get us all tuning into the radio. The moment at which the BBC vanishes to be replaced with the wartime broadcasting service was known in the documents as N hour, N standing for national. But prior to the moment when it switches over, prior to the arrival of N hour, was A hour, A here standing for announcements. A hour was 60 minutes prior to the dreaded N hour and consisted mainly of a nice calm voice reading out the local radio frequencies you had to tune into. So it was lists and lists of locations across the United Kingdom and the corresponding um, frequency you had to tune in on the radio to find the wartime broadcasting service. So at A hour, all the scheduled programmes on TV and radio would cease to be replaced with these repeated announcements of radio frequencies. And in good old sensible BBC fashion, the announcement advises us to have pencil and paper ready to jot down our local frequency. Now, despite the name, A hour did not last for an hour. 
It was only 30 minutes long and was followed by S Hour. Again, S Hour was only 30 minutes long also. S Hour consisted of total silence as the transmitters across the country changed their wavelengths and readied for the switch to the wartime broadcasting service. So there would be silence there. The only broadcast available on the BBC during S Hour would be on longwave radio and on TV where a special programme to prepare the population for the switchover would be broadcast. And then at the end of S hour, we have the dreaded N hour. And that's where all the TV shuts down. Indeed, that's where the BBC itself stops transmitting and becomes the wartime broadcasting service. This is the British Broadcasting Corporation. So what would this new wartime broadcasting service be showing? Anything good on tonight? Well, in the earlier Cold War, there had been plans to include some entertainment programming, bits of radio comedy, bits of light music, but this was dropped when it was realised that the population would be tuning in on battery-powered radios, so it was best not to drain battery power listening to I'm sorry I haven't a clue in your fallout room. The entertainment programming was said to include The Sound of Music, Round the Horn, I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, but these programmes were dumped and the wartime broadcasting service was going to be very stripped back and very austere indeed. The idea was that listeners, um, those who had survived the nuclear war, would be told to tune in on the hour, each hour, to hear a broadcast but otherwise were to keep the radios switched off to preserve power. As we discussed at the beginning, the BBC's most important role in nuclear war was surely that of alerting the population by helping deliver the four-minute warning. And the horrible truth is that, for many, the voice on the BBC's recorded warning was the last voice they would ever hear. But for the survivors, well, what then? What can the wartime broadcasting service do for them? Firstly, it would confirm that there had indeed been a nuclear attack and would offer some basic advice. Now, of course, if you're in or near a city, it might be very obvious, too horribly obvious that there's been a nuclear attack. But if you're in the countryside or if you're in an area that's not been targeted, then it might not be immediately obvious and you'll need to know what's happened. You'll need some confirmation Even if you don't need the confirmation, it would still be surely quite soothing to know that the BBC, or at least the BBC and its new guys, is still there and is still broadcasting to the nation. So therefore, there is still a nation, such a thing as um, the United Kingdom, for now at least. So the wartime broadcasting service would get in touch with the survivors to confirm, in the first instance, what had happened and issue a bit of basic advice Here's a script from the 1980s to have been recorded in advance by the newsreader Peter Donaldson, who was known as the voice of Radio 4. This is London calling. 
This is the Wartime Broadcasting Service. This country has been attacked with nuclear weapons. Communications have been severely disrupted and the number of casualties and the extent of the damage are not yet known. We shall bring you further information as soon as possible. Meanwhile, stay tuned to this wavelength, stay calm and stay in your own homes. Remember there is nothing to be gained by trying to get away. By leaving your homes, you could be exposing yourselves to greater danger. If you leave, you may find yourself without food, without water, without accommodation and without protection. Radioactive fallout which follows a nuclear explosion is many times more dangerous if you're directly exposed to it in the open. Roofs and walls offer substantial protection. The safest place is indoors. Make sure gas and other fuel supplies are turned off and that all fires are extinguished. If mains water is available, this can be used for firefighting. You should also refill all your containers for drinking water after the fires have been put out because the mains water supply may not be available for very long. Water must not be used for flushing lavatories. Until you are told that lavatories may be used again, other toilet arrangements must be made. Use your water only for essential drinking and cooking purposes. Water means life. Don't waste it. Make your food stocks last. Ration your supply, because it may have to last for 14 days or more. If you have fresh food in the house, use this first to avoid wasting it. Food in tins will keep. If you live in an area where a fallout warning has been given, stay in your fallout room until you're told it's safe to come out. When the immediate danger has passed, the sirens will sound a steady note. The all-clear message will also be given on this wavelength. If you leave the fallout room to go to the lavatory or replenish food or water supplies, do not remain outside the room for a minute longer than is necessary. Do not, in any circumstances, go outside the house. Radioactive fallout can kill. You cannot see it or feel it, but it is there. If you go outside, you will bring danger to your family and you may die. Stay in your fallout room until you're told it is safe to come out or you hear the all clear on the sirens. Here are the main points again. Stay in your own homes, and if you live in an area where a fallout warning has been given, stay in your fallout room until you're told it is safe to come out. The message that the immediate danger has passed will be given by the sirens and repeated on this wavelength. Make sure that the gas and all fuel supplies are turned off and that all fires are extinguished. Water must be rationed, and used only for essential drinking and cooking purposes. It must not be used for flushing lavatories. Ration your food supply. It may have to last for 14 days or more. We shall repeat this broadcast in two hours' time. Stay tuned to this wavelength, but switch your radios off now to save your batteries until we come on the air again. That is the end of this broadcast. That message would have gone out across radio to all surviving listeners in the UK. But remember, there's been a nuclear war, so the idea of being governed from London is gone. London is probably just ash, and government, if they had enough notice, would have dispersed around the country. So the UK, after nuclear war, would become a patchwork of regions, all trying to govern themselves, sort out their own local recovery, until one day when we might, as they say, get back to normal. But a country split into different regions needs regional broadcasting.
There's no point in having all the broadcasts coming from one central point down in the south. Different regions will have suffered different types and different levels of damage, and they will need unique advice and specific fallout warnings. So, the wartime broadcasting service was designed to be flexible. There would be central broadcasts for the whole nation, and these would probably come from Wood Norton, which is the BBC centre in Worcestershire, which has a bunker underneath. But Wood Norton could hand over to local BBC studios for regional broadcasts when necessary. So, where were these regional broadcasts going to come from? Well, of course... Any studios across the country to have any type of protection would have to be underground. So space was made in the various government bunkers scattered across the country for a tiny little BBC studio. I don't think we've covered this yet in the podcast, but in a nutshell, central government would split before a nuclear war and scatter itself across the country, and Britain would be divided up into civil defence regions, each one governed by a cabinet minister. And each of these regions would have its own bunker, staffed with local politicians, experts from fire, police, health, food supply, etc. And yes, from the BBC. They would have little studios inside the bunker, which could broadcast to the local area, giving specific advice and instructions and any relevant fallout warnings. So the wartime broadcasting service was designed to switch between specific local advice and then some kind of unifying national advice. And it was considered a very good thing that different and changing advice would be coming locally, as there was a worry that simply broadcasting a distant London voice to all the devastated regions might harm morale and damage any sense, if there could be any, that we were all in this together. It would be even worse if that distant London voice kept saying the same old thing. Say you got a trusted and known BBC voice, um, a Jeremy Paxman or a Moira Stewart or a Terry Wogan, to deliver a recorded message. Now, that might sound reassuring the first time you hear it, but what about the fifth time you hear it? The 17th time? The 40th time? Might you start to get the impression that the BBC... And Terry Wogan had gone. And all that was left was a little tape recorder clicking on and off, on and off. So the BBC were keen not to stick just to sensible pre-recorded messages from well-known trusted names. There would be a little benefit in that, but on the, in the long term, no. It could actually do the opposite. It could damage morale. It could damage the impression that, of course the establishment and the authorities wanted to push out there, that Britain and all its agencies and organisations and traditions still exist. And of course, the one at the top of the tree, or one of those at the top of the tree, is the BBC. The impression must be given that it is still there, and one day it will be back to its good old self, broadcasting EastEnders and the Generation Game. And blankety-blank repeats. But for now, in the immediate aftermath of nuclear war, it would be the wartime broadcasting service delivering not entertainment, but news, advice and instructions. Now, the instructions part is quite sinister because if you've seen 
the Panorama episode called If the Bomb Drops. It was made in 1981 by, um, we've already mentioned him, Jeremy Paxman, and it's available on YouTube. I would highly recommend it. I think I've seen it now since it was uploaded about five or six times. It's brilliant. And it's about the topic we're discussing here, about the those scattered government ministers going out to the nuclear bunkers across the country. And in one scene, Paxman sits down with one of these leaders and asks him, OK, you would be in charge here after the bomb. And they talk about his various duties. And one of those duties is being able to order, what would you call it, execution. So if anyone is rioting or looting or trying to invade the bunker, break into the bunker and disrupt the work of government, he has the right of right of life or death over them. He can order their execution. So it's a cabinet minister sitting there with lots of local politicians, you know, boring men in suits, and in an instant they're transformed into people who can order your death. It's horrifying. So when I say that um, he, the the leader of this uh, bunker, his title changed throughout the Cold War as the organisation changed, but often he was known as the commissioner or the controller. He would be able to broadcast from the BBC studio also, and he could issue instructions or have one of his subordinates issue instructions. And those would be, um, for example, there would be work to be done, of course, there would be reconstruction and recovery work, in theory. So, given that these politicians, again, in theory, are in charge of the food supply, they would control the food in that region, they would control its storage and its distribution, and of course, if they wanted lots of work done, for example, the roads cleared of rubble and of corpses then they would have to ask the population to please turn up for work. And of course, nobody wants to go out into an irradiated landscape to shovel up corpses. So naturally, people might refuse. Well, if you refuse, you don't get fed. This man and his colleagues are in charge of all the food. You, if you follow government advice, are in your fallout room with a 14-day supply of baked beans and soup and rice... After that runs out, where do you replenish your stocks from? You can't. You can't just pop down to Tesco. Tesco has been smashed in the blast. And if it does still stand, it's long since been ransacked, either by looters or by the government themselves. They wouldn't call it looting, of course. They'd call it requisitioning the supplies. So really, there's no way to restock your little food cupboard unless you turn up for these rather unpleasant duties which are being offered So that's what I mean by instructions. They could, again, it's all theoretical, but in theory they could say, okay, citizens must arrive at, and they would name some landmarks that were still standing that people in the area would recognise, turn up at at the, the cathedral or the football stadium or this park, turn up there for work tomorrow morning, and obviously there's no point giving you wages. What are you going to spend the money on? And they would probably pay you by food, food and water. So unless you follow the instruction to turn up for corpse shoveling duties you simply don't get fed it's as simple as that so when i say it's quite sinister that he will be broadcasting instructions that's the kind of thing that he would probably be talking about yes they'd give you advice yes they might give you some kind of comfort in knowing that someone somewhere is still in charge but he could also issue instructions and if you don't follow those instructions you're probably going to be left alone and starving So when we think of a BBC broadcast or a 
wartime broadcasting service speech coming out over the airwaves. It's reassuring to know that someone's still there. But the flip side of that is that someone has a lot of power in the post-nuclear world. And if you don't hop to it and start following his instructions, he can use that power to starve you or even shoot you. This is the British Broadcasting Corporation. That's the end of the episode, but let me tell you, I'll be in London in a couple of weeks' time, mainly for bits and bobs of work, but I'm going to squeeze in some time to visit one or two little Cold War sites, not the big touristy ones, little off-the-beaten-track ones, and do a short video from each of them. Uh, I'll post the videos on Patreon, if I can get my hair to look nice, Uh, so my patrons will get a first look at them, uh, and then later I'll put them out on Twitter and Facebook. Also, if you're a Patreon supporter and you're signed up to the postcard level of rewards, then I'll be sending you a postcard from London with some details of my nuclear adventures. I'm also going to add one or two BBC letters from my archive to my private Facebook page. You can get access to that if you're signed up again to one of the Patreon levels that offers access to the archive Facebook page. So if you want to support the podcast with a donation each month, go to my Patreon page where you can choose how much to donate and you'll get nuclear rewards to go along with it, like postcards, access to the archives. You can even get your name in the acknowledgements section of my book. So take a look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And remember, you can reach me with any questions at Julie A. McDowell on Twitter or through my Facebook page, which is called Nuclear Britain or through my website, which is juliemcdevil.com. So let me thank uh, the patrons who support the podcast. Let me say thank you to Arika, Jacqueline Brick, Jonathan Abelins, Peter Mars, Richard Grundy, Dave Marks, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Ewan McLeod, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damian Ryan, Peter Lee, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Linda Woolnuff, Kevin Bitter, Andrew Key, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell-Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace, Claire Brennan, Paul Jonathan Viner and Gordy McNair. Thank you everyone for listening and I'll be back next week with another podcast.